Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Stephanie Murray here with Jennifer Smith and Steve Cazella, and it has been an historic week in American history. The president uh, became ill with the coronavirus, went to the hospital, and returned to the White House all since we last got together to record the pod. How are you guys doing? I'm going to go with what Jen Smith likes to say, which is the time has no meaning and is basically a flat circle. It's like, I, I don't even know what day it is half the time. Unless, of course, we have the horse race recording, which takes place on Wednesday, as best I can tell. But other than that, it's like, what day is it? I don't know. Breaking news never stops. Like, I never go to work. It doesn't matter. So um, I don't know. How, how How do we even keep track of time at this point? Well, you know, the weirdness, too, of the president's diagnosis uh, is that it was announced in the middle of the night. Like, it wasn't even during a normal work day. Um, so, so I think that adds to kind of the strangeness around it. And then, of course, you know, there is a lot of stuff that makes it hard to even get your head around because all the reporting that has come out subsequently basically had to spend time fact-checking uh, the president's doctor who was giving a lot of confusing information and at times, um, as he put it, was not necessarily misleading the press when he was giving these answers. But then also the New York Times, I think just yesterday reported that even in the midst of all of this, um, they discovered that the president had not been getting COVID tested every single day, even as he was refusing to wear a mask. So really for reporters and people watching this, trying to even get their heads around what the timeline was, is it feels nearly impossible, let alone what day it is. <laughs> Kind of the rapid drip of information. I'd call it a slow drip, but it's happened so quickly. Um, I mean, I think Maggie Haberman wrote like 14 stories in the 24 hours after the president announced he had become sick with COVID-19. It like, you know, it has just this strange effect. And I think it was something similar that happened when uh, in the lead up to the Mueller report, a lot of the things in that report we already knew, but we had found out so incrementally. And that has just happened on like an accelerated scale with this coronavirus outbreak at the White House. Um, It's just story after story and tiny breaking news development after tiny breaking news development. Um, And like you said, you know, fact checking the doctors in real time. And so I wonder, you know, what the impact would have been if we found all of this out at like a slower rate. But of course, it's 2020 times not real. So maybe it's going slow. And I just don't even know because I have no concept of time. Well, and now 14 staffers have tested positive at the White House right now. So it's not even that we're trying to keep a handle on when the president tested positive the first time or even when his last negative test was. But now... We have to we have to pay attention to when every single person near him got it. I believe most recently was uh, Stephen Miller. And then in the middle of all of these news cycles, other news cycles are still happening. There was a really kind of kind of uh, I don't know if shocking is the right word, but really striking report that came out again yesterday or today about the White House's response to um, separating families at the border and and how do you even keep your head around what would normally be like a week-long, dramatic, possibly administration-crushing news cycle when it's in the middle of all of us just trying to even figure out whether or not the president was positive a week ago? 
Yeah, I have to tell you, in the Politico Slack, I mean, or over like our email chains and things, I'm always seeing we have this graphic where the people who have tested positive for the virus who are at that uh, Amy Coney Barrett event in the Rose Garden, uh, they get, you know, highlighted and outlined once they've tested positive to show who has. And it's being updated like multiple times a day now. Yeah, and there's also, of course, the staffers both within the White House and then at, at other places that the president uh, was during that time. And I think it it just comes down to the contempt that they showed for the science behind it. Just contempt for the science, contempt for truth, contempt for verifiable scientific facts, you know, the things that we all well know about how to avoid the virus. Um, you know, it almost became an article of faith. Like, we have to pretend that this thing isn't happening. We have to pretend that it doesn't exist. And what's more, if you think that it does and you're going to wear a mask and act responsibly, then there's something defective about you. You know, that's kind of the the weird um, reality that I think the White House has was put in. And eventually this was going to happen. You know, it just was going to happen um, when when the, the right precautions weren't being taken. It seems like there's still more to come on this, too. It really does. You know, we're still getting diagnoses, Stephanie, as you point out, that we're seeing in Politico. You know, at some point we're going to find out how long the president was sick for, I hope, you know, when his last negative diagnosis was a little bit more maybe accurate, more fulsome information about what his health situation actually is. You know, there's just so much that that, that it seems like we'd like to know. But I, I think it just bears repeating also because it's showing up in the polls that it was contempt. It was contempt for fact. It was contempt for science. That's how we got where we are right now, you know, and that's why I think that that one of the things that voters are reacting to. And of course, last night, Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence debated 12 feet apart, separated by, in my view, some frustratingly small plexiglass barriers. Um, and and it, it is really kind of an interesting thing. We're going to talk a little bit later with Kevin O'Connor about the Massachusetts Senate race, and their debate just the other night happened in different studios. And so the question really becomes, in the midst of a pandemic, why are we still at the presidential and vice presidential level having people in the same room? I spent some time yesterday talking to uh, experts about whether those plexiglass shields are even useful. Um, and, you know, the jury is still out. The answer is probably uh, no. I mean, one expert I spoke to said that plexiglass shouldn't be used in place of things like masks and social dis- uh, social distancing. But they've become really just this flashpoint, uh, especially between Republicans and Democrats. Like, literally, plexiglass dividers are divisive. Uh, Vice President Pence, you know, he at first uh, pushed back on using plexiglass dividers. Uh, the Biden campaign had called for it. Uh, in South Carolina, the debate between Jamie Harrison and Lindsey Graham, uh, Harrison brought his own plexiglass divider and set it up on the stage. And like you mentioned, the debate between Ed Markey and Kevin O'Connor, the moderators, uh, Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan, had a plexiglass divider between the two of them. Uh, but, you know, it's beyond being a safety precaution, I think the other thing to think about is that it's also a visual reminder that we're still in the middle of a pandemic and the risk is really high and as kind of silly and funny as fighting over plexiglass is. I mean, these are a few of the most important debates of the next four years coming up. Um, and it's just not clear how safe they're going to be when there is a virus spreading. 
And there's just no reason to not go overboard either. You know, there's no reason to not be way safer than you need to be. You know, I think that's that's part of what struck me about particularly the Pence campaign's reaction to all of this is there was that very, very weird note that was put out by the CDC or where the I, I guess it was quoting the CDC, perhaps, where they were talking about whether Pence had been had technically been in an environment which would have put him in close pro- would have counted as close proximity to, to a known case. And it's just like, why? Why do that? Why not just be way safer than you need to be? Show some respect for each other. Show some respect for the opponents, the moderators, all the staff that are in the room. And Stephanie, like you said, set an example. Set an example for for the country, you know, and also follow the country's example. That's what we're all doing. We're all going way overboard and staying way further away than we need to, keeping our kids home, you know, and teaching them at home in school. We're all doing Way more than like, am I exactly six feet, two inches away and less than 15 minutes away from somebody who has a confirmed case in the last certain number of hours? Like, that's what that memo said. And it is so ridiculous. Just show some respect. Stay away. Give them some distance. Yes, I am upset. (laughs) My face is turning red. (laughs) But it's just like, why do it? Why fight it? Why fight over it? Such a weird hill to die on. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the the tone right here coming from you, Steve, is A, very understandable, and B, mirrors kind of this this sort of um, cloud hanging over all of this right now where a lot of people are extremely frustrated uh, about the opposite side of the discussion where there are people who are very frustrated even now that Joe Biden wears a mask regularly, which is kind of baffling to me. He's still, even after the president's diagnosis, um, being in some places criticized for wearing a mask. And then also uh, the the greatest strange um, comment that's come out of this one is Kayleigh McInerney, who is the White House press secretary and has since tested positive for COVID, said that Donald Trump now has the added experience of having gotten the virus, which Joe Biden has not, as though that is a a positive thing about ability to lead in this moment. And it it is just kind of chaos to watch. That brings us in a roundabout way to our favorite question, which is... When are we here and why are we here? <laughs> Jen, when are we here? Uh, we are here in the past, uh, the future. I don't think we're here in the present, but we're going to talk about <laughs> the other night, which did happen in the past. We're going to be talking with um, Kevin O'Connor, who is challenging Senator Ed Markey uh, about the debate and kind of his interaction with the National Republican Party and especially the tensions that arise out of that when you're running as a Republican in Massachusetts. And then, Stephanie, we're going to talk to you about some stuff. What's happening? We are going to talk about uh, the battle for leading the Massachusetts Democratic Party. If you thought it was annoying that we were already talking about 2021, today we will be talking about 2022. So buckle in. (laughs) All right, we're buckled. Let's go. In the race for the U.S. Senate, Republican candidate Kevin O'Connor met Democratic incumbent Senator Ed Markey in a GBH debate this week. He joins us on the horse race now to discuss the debate and his candidacy. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Um, So let's just kind of start with the basics. Why are you running for Senate? 
I'm concerned about our country. I'm concerned about the policy directions that we're going in in some respects and, and also the, 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 the tone of our politics. I'm father of four boys. I've been a small business owner and I've been a lawyer for the last 30 years. And I think we're not being served well by career politicians like Senator Markey, who focus more on polarization, uh, that focus more on polarization and, and, and posturing, frankly, than, than getting things done for the American people. Uh, I think that someone who has not been in government for 44 years and who's actually seen the effects of laws and regulations in the real world um, can, can help make government more efficient and, and work more constructively in terms of solving problems, both on a bipartisan basis and then with, with uh, people from Massachusetts that make sure our voice is heard in Washington. So what would be a couple uh, specific things or policy areas that you think you could be more effective than where Ed Markey's been during his career? Well, I think just about every area, frankly, I think he, um, on, on immigration, he's been there for 44 years. He's, he's gotten nothing done. There seems to be a preoccupation uh, in, in Washington with comprehensive immigration reform. And I, and I think, and we, and we saw this also with, with the pandemic relief, that sometimes the best way to get things done is to focus on what's called a clean bill just a straightforward law that, that addresses one part of a problem. And through that resolution, you build a working coalition upon which you can turn to the next issue. So I think he hasn't gotten anything done on immigration. I think in terms of um, his, his economic proposals have been really would be disastrous if they were taken seriously by anyone in his party. They're not, fortunately. But uh, I, so I think that the, uh, on issues of pandemic relief, issues of economic growth, how we grow out of the pandemic, he's, he, he, what he's offering is $2,000 a month for every person in the United States dating back to March, regardless of whether the person's a citizen. So that's $96,000 a year for a family of four. And there's absolutely no way to pay for it he was asked how we would pay for it. And he talked about repealing the Trump tax cut, which would come nowhere close to paying for the $5.6 trillion a year that he's talking about. So that there, there are, I believe, senators who want to work on a bipartisan basis to get things done. Senator Markey is not part of that group. And we also see that with respect to climate change. Um, there's, a, there's a working group of senators, including Senator Whitehouse in Rhode Island, who are constructively engaged on a bipartisan basis trying to reach solutions for climate change. Senator Markey instead adopted the, the, the Green New Deal position with, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, in, in 2019. It was not a serious proposal. It was put up for a vote in the United States Senate. And, and Senator Markey was afraid to vote for his own bill. He voted present. And, and so that, that sort of behavior, which I think compromises a senator's effectiveness ultimately, I think where I come from, if, if, if you put something forward as your idea, if you're afraid to vote for it, that, that just inevitably 
diminishes your colleague's respect for you. And, and I think that's unfortunately characteristic of how he has gone about um, addressing the, the, the challenges that our country faces. And if we could if we could talk, actually, since you brought it up, the stimulus package, uh, you've been in in a bit of a tricky spot in Massachusetts, um, aligned with President Trump, who's not very popular here in the state. And right now on the stimulus front, he is sending kind of confusing messages and a lot of people's views around the negotiation around the stimulus, um, whether or not he'd support particular bills or whether he would uh, support just a specific direct deposit plan again. Do you think the president has been operating in a helpful or constructive way during these discussions? Or do you believe it's down to individual senators to sort this out without him? Well, it can't be sorted out without him. He's a critical player. And I think on balance, the administration has done pretty well with the pandemic relief bills. And I credit Secretary Mnuchin with that. He's, he's, he's been a pretty good deal maker and, 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 and gotten things done. This one is languishing. I think there is fault to be laid at each side. The trillion dollar municipal bailout that Senator Markey's advocating for is a non-starter and, and uh, is, is, is part of the problem. So in terms of the, the current state of negotiations, I hope that people will come back to the table and get something done. Would you propose something specific that you hope they take up? Well, they're, they're, they're I, I think, they're somewhere between 1.6 trillion and 2.2 trillion, as I understand it. And I don't follow it day to day, but it seems like we're close enough to get something done at this point, and 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 uh, with a little more compromise on each side. Tactically, why the administration walks away, or why uh, Speaker Pelosi walks away at any given time, I don't know. What I do know is that on a recurring basis the House of Representatives has taken the opportunity to throw laundry lists, uh, sort of wish list programs uh, under the guise of pandemic relief. And I think that's not been constructive. The, the classic example was, the, was the, um, the relief for the Kennedy Center, which had just absolutely nothing to do with pandemic relief. And, and it was part of um, a bill that from the House that wasn't responsible, that delayed relief in, I believe, April, so a really critical time, it delayed relief by five days. So that's not constructive. I think Senator Markey's been part of the, the group, unfortunately, that has been unconstructive in, in these negotiations. But I'm hopeful they'll get something done. Continuing on the topic of President Donald Trump, you know, He's just so unpopular in Massachusetts. I mean, we're among, you know, the top states that have the highest disapproval rating of the president. The slice of the electorate that is uh, that identifies as a Republican is pretty small. So why support President Trump when you're running for Senate in Massachusetts? I mean, you know, like when Charlie Baker and President Trump are, you know, at such odds, especially now during coronavirus, why support him? Well, I'm I'm, I'm trying to be straight with people about how I'm going to vote. And, and I think ultimately that the path to success politically and the path that I'm interested in, I'm a 58-year-old with four kids. I have, a, I'm a, I have a happy home life and I have a, a job I love. So I'm doing this because I really want to make, make a difference. But I think that the, 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 the people who've done well have been authentic and clear about how they're going to vote on, on issues. My view with respect to this vote, I'm not someone that has been historically 
a hard line. You know, I'm not wearing a MAGA hat, but I'm, I haven't been historically, but I'm voting for the president. And I think I've articulated the reasons why. I think from an economic perspective, the, 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 the economic growth that we experienced was, uh, as of the end of 2019, was great. It was historic in that it extended to the bottom 20% of earners for the first time in, in I think, about 40 years. And, and it really brought unemployment down for groups that had historically suffered. We were doing better with manufacturing. I think that the opportunity zones that, that he's advocated for are really good for the inner city. And, uh, and, I, and I think on the issue of community safety, he's better than Joe Biden. Joe, Joe Biden and, and certainly Ed Markey are defund the police types or they're certainly sending a lot of signals to that effect. I think that will do nothing except destabilize our most vulnerable neighborhood. That, that's the basis for my choice. I also just think we're stronger in terms of foreign policy. Senator Markey, for example, wants to cut the federal military budget or the defense budget by 50%. I think that's a bad idea. So I, I, I'm the Republican nominee. I'm supporting my, candidate, my party's candidate. And, and I think ultimately people in Massachusetts will focus, realize that the job of a senator is very important. It's a separate choice. Senator Markey is running as an AOC, Bernie Sanders, um, essentially the, the Democratic Socialist wing of, of the party. And no one's ever run successfully in Massachusetts on that model. Let's talk about talk a bit about the the role that, as far as uh, the Senate specifically, which of course is what is um, what you're a candidate for. Um, some of the big issues that are facing the Senate right now um, are Supreme Court nominations, and specifically uh, the the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett uh, for for Supreme Court. Should the Senate move forward with the confirmation process, even after all the things that were said um, during the during the 2016 election about not confirming a confirming a nominee this close to an election? Yes, it should. The Senate should work through its term every time. We can't take every fourth year off. So it's the constitutional responsibility of the president to put forth a nominee, and the Senate, within reason, should should act promptly on that. There is. So should they have voted? Should they have voted on Merrick Garland then? I don't like what happened with Merrick Garland. So so I what I would propose going forward is um, that we have a, we set up a retirement age that's reasonable, say seventy five. In Massachusetts, we have a retirement age that's seventy, and and it works pretty well for us. And what it does is give greater predictability as to when judges are are are, are leaving. And, 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 and it still allows time for judges to uh, have great, illustrious careers with, with the full benefits of their fastballs. Um, so I'd like to do that. And I think it would be good for the Senate, which is, is a body where Senator Markey wants to get rid of the filibuster. There's been pressure away from the, for, the filibuster has been eroded and Senator Markey would toss it completely. I think that that, uh, what we want to have is more rules that promote collaboration. One idea that I have is that nominees for the Supreme Court, which is, it's, it's the most visible judicial branch position, it's critically important, that there ought to be some agreement that nominees will come up for at least a vote within, say, three or four months of being offered by an administration. 
And actually now kind of touching on some of the reasons why the Supreme Supreme Court is such a hot topic right now, uh, one of the ways that inequities in the system right now persists is through clamping down on voting rights. Uh, important provisions of the Voting Rights Act were struck down in Shelby County, which allowed states, even with histories of racially discriminatory voting laws, to change their procedures without outside oversight. Now, during this term, two cases now have the chance to gut the act further by eliminating the results test element, which focuses on disparate impacts of election laws on voters of color. So as you're considering the Senate's role in assessing a new Supreme Court nominee, you're running to be in the chamber who would approve that nominee. Should the Voting Rights Act be strengthened, limited, restored? And how much of a priority is that for you? Well, Congress should strengthen it. So it's a law and Congress decides it. Voting rights are critically important for me. I, I played a, an important bipartisan role this year in terms of voting rights. Uh, as you know, I was confronted with a situation regarding ballot access where my father had come down with COVID-19 and the legislature and I, like all other candidates, were presented with a situation where we needed to gather ink signatures and at pretty high numbers, which is really an impediment in terms of getting on the ballot. And uh, I asked the legislature to make an accommodation for this year because of the pandemic. I was ignored. I then teamed up with two Democrats and we brought an emergency class action before the Supreme Judicial Court and, and asked the court to find that the legislature's failure to act in the pandemic with respect to the, the signature requirements violated the U.S. Constitution and the Massachusetts Constitution, and we won. So I teamed up with Robbie Goldstein, who was a congressional candidate on the Democratic side, a progressive, and Melissa Brower-Smith, who was a state representative candidate, I believe, and, and we, we worked well together. So voting rights are very important. As to any given case, I, what I want is judges to apply the Constitution and the law. Too often, I feel like our legislators are failing to take, the courts are having to act as they did in, in our voting rights case because the legislature failed to do its job. Senator Markey is part of the problem. He's part of the polarization and calcification. I'm someone who will work across the aisle and have the legislature do its job. That signatures lawsuit feels like it was so long ago now. I mean, we always joke on this podcast that time isn't real, but, you know, it's just been such a, a long uh, time that we've been, you know, in social distancing and all of those things. But we've got to talk about the courts one more time. Um do you think that Roe v. Wade should be overturned? Uh, this is something that's come up uh, in the Supreme Court fight, or is it something you think should be codified into law? Uh, what are your thoughts there? It's, it's set a law, I think. So what I'm looking for is, is for justices who apply the law, and, 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 and my view of law involves respect for precedent. And so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I will not subject any candidate to a litmus test. This is really important that we do that. And I, I especially appreciate it as a lawyer because you never know what wrinkle is going to be thrown at you. I, I, um, so, but, but, but respect for precedent is what enables us to move on and address other important issues. And, and so that's, that's my orientation. And, and, and that's my perspective as a, as a lawyer. So your view is that Roe versus Wade should stand then based on that? 
Well, I, I, it depends on what you define as Roe versus Wade. It's a, it's a standing precedent. So Russo, the Russo case this year came up, and Justice Roberts said he, he, he had decided a case one way that related to abortion rights previously, and then Russo came up and, it, and he said, this is really the same case we've already decided, and we should respect the precedent. So I, I, I don't know what cases are coming up in the future. What I do know is, is that a good judge that, that values the Constitution and the rule of law and has appropriate deference to precedent will, will serve us well. It's really important for people to understand with the Supreme Court, we don't know what issues they'll be dealing with 10 or 20 years from now. They could be dealing with issues we can't even imagine right now. We need smart people who have integrity, and, 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 and can work well with their colleagues to, to make sound decisions. And, and, and that's, that will ultimately guide my decision with respect to every nominee. I think uh, one of the reasons that Stephanie and Steve brought this up as well is, you know, the question of how you balance your personal acceptance of the right to safe and legal abortions for most of a pregnancy. Obviously, you have uh, consistent objections with most of your party concerning um, third trimester abortions. How do you balance that with an affiliation with a national party that has been spending much of its time trying to make it as difficult as possible for women to access the abortions that Roe allows them access to? Well, parties are coalitions, coalitions of people. And, and I, I've joined the, 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 the Republican Party because I believe in safe neighborhoods, good jobs, respect for the rule of law. And I think the Republican Party is, offers, the, and, and a strong America, there's fundamental differences in terms of national security. So I think it, it, it offers the, 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 the best opportunity on balance, and, and, and it's the best mechanism through which I can try to contribute and, and help our country. Well, so much to talk about, but unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Uh, Republican candidate for Senate, Kevin O'Connor, thanks for joining us. There are only a few weeks until November 3rd, so thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate it. The Massachusetts Democratic Party is facing a contest for party chair, as two potential challengers have set their sights on current chairman Gus Bickford's role. So what does that mean and why now? Well, our own Stephanie Murray has insight on the contest, and she happens to be right here on the horse race. She's also the author of the Massachusetts Politico Playbook and a prominent yet personable purveyor of party politics. Stephanie, thank you for joining us exclusively right here on the horse race. Prominent yet personable purveyor. I, I like that very much. <laughs> we started doing alliteration last week and literally just like Google adjectives that start with whatever we're looking for. Um, so congratulations. Um, but anyway. You can't tell the listeners our secrets, Steve. <laughs> I think all of someone's going to copy us now. All the radio people, though, I think just covered their ears and dived under a table when you said that many P words in a row. <laughs> I have a pop filter now. I don't know if people can tell. Um, but anyway, so before we get into the details of this particular contest, we should talk a bit about what the party chair actually does. So, Stephanie, start there. What is the actual role that's, that they're running for here? So the party chair is the leader of the party. Um Lots of members, they make decisions for the party, um, run the meetings, handle all sorts of stuff like that. It's a four-year position, and the chair gets elected right after the November election. Um, I believe, don't quote me on this, I believe it's November 13th. Um, so just right after the election, uh, they will vote for party chair. And it will all happen virtually this year because of coronavirus. 
So who is actually running for this hallowed position? So we know for sure that Bob Massey is running. He's a former candidate for governor. Um, He told me over the phone last night that he uh, gave it some thought and has decided to run. Uh, The other name that I've been hearing is Mike Lake, who ran for lieutenant governor and auditor in the past. Um, He has made some phone calls to people telling them that he is running. And Bob Massey uh, confirmed to me that him and Mike Lake talked and they both told each other that they plan on running. So in some ways, Bob Massey pulled a Marty Walsh uh, in confirming to me that Mike Lake's going to run. So we have some exclusive data analysis that we can bring you right here on the horse race. We dug into the archive and discovered that if either Bob Massey or Mike Lake were to win, they would either be the second Robert or the second Michael to hold the role of um, Massachusetts, chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party. So as a white man, I just have to say I feel extremely well represented. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's a real thing to point out that, uh, you know, the leader at the top of the party doesn't exactly uh, reflect the changing makeup of the Democratic Party. You know, the big victories that we've seen in Massachusetts among Democrats have been particularly among women and people of color, uh, not just in the congressional delegation, but also in seats on Beacon Hill. Uh, And current chairman Gus Bickford, who's running for re-election, has pointed to flipping seats uh, in the legislature as a, a reason to keep him around. He's running again as well. So we basically are looking at the possibility of having three white men as candidates. Is there any prospect that anybody else would get in or is this pretty much the field? Um, I believe this is pretty much the field. But if anybody is listening to this and considering getting in, uh, give me a call and give Playbook a tip. Uh, But the other thing that's really important about being party chair is that the election for governor in 2022 is coming up. Uh, And a big failure that Democrats have had in Massachusetts, we're a deep blue state with the most popular Republican governor in the country. So Democrats have been totally unable to dent Charlie Baker's popularity. um, And they haven't really been able to put up a very formidable challenger to him in uh, the last election. Jay Gonzalez, I think, got around 33 percent of the vote, the Democratic candidate in 2018. Uh, So the onus is going to be on the party chair to recruit candidates to get the field figured out and to support somebody uh, if Charlie Baker does run again. We don't know if he will, uh, but to put up a tough challenger to the governor. And actually, then sort of pivoting over to the party chair role itself is not without controversy, depending on the actual year and cycle. Uh, How is Gus Bickford doing right now? Uh, Alex Morse came up in a pretty big way uh, during this primary season and specifically the state Democratic Party's handling of it. So is he dealing with any baggage from that? That's right, Jen. Um, What happened with Alex Morse will absolutely come up um, when the candidates debate. Uh, So over the summer, Holyoke Mayor Alex Morse, who was running in a Democratic primary against Congressman Richard Neal, a group of college Democrats uh, made allegations against him that turned out to be part of a political smear attempt. um, And they did go to the to the state party for help. Uh, The college Democrats is an arm of the Massachusetts State Party. So it makes sense that they would go to them. But Bickford and other leaders in the party have uh, 
been criticized for the way that they've handled it. They hired an investigator to investigate what happened and take a look at it. Um, we're still waiting on those findings. Um, but Mike Lake in particular has been pretty vocal about Bickford and the party's handling of the situation, according to internal emails that I've seen, you know, email chains talking about it. So that'll be something that definitely comes up. And what Bob Massey said to me last night was in his view, if the party's fighting over internal stuff and uh, having issues internally, it's going to be harder to get organized and uh, run a tough challenger against uh, whoever runs for governor in 2022 as a Republican. All right. Well, key races shaping up everywhere. Stephanie Murray, the personable and uh, prominent purveyor of party politics. <laughs> I can't even say that twice. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, critical discussion. It is always a pleasure. All right. Well, that brings us to our favorite segment. And we know from the thousands of user comments we get every week that it is your favorite segment as well. And that is, of course, trivia. Stephanie Murray, what is the question this week? We have a topical question this week um, to go along with our last segment. So with the race for chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party heating up, we got to wondering how many women and how many people of color have been chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party. Uh, you can send in your answers on Twitter, over email. If you want to use the carrier pigeon, that is fine by me. And that is all the time we have for this week. I am Jennifer Smith, and I'm here with Steve Cazella and Stephanie Murray. As always, our producer is Libby Gormley. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and sign up for the Politico Massachusetts Playbook if you're not already subscribed. We hope you are. And furthermore, call the Massing Polling Group if you need any polls done. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>